Good morning, Grace. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter one. If you're here visiting with us, we welcome you. We want you to feel uh, very much at ease here, and uh, we hope that you will enjoy your time of worship with us as we gather around our Messiah, Jesus Christ. We're preaching through uh, our second, we're in our second week of Advent, and uh, We're preaching through the first 18 verses of John's gospel, which are a kind of prologue to the book as a whole. And last week, uh, Dave Talley preached through the first three verses that talk about the word, okay? Uh, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And uh, he, he highlighted four aspects of Christ, the incarnate word last week that I think bear uh, mentioning again. He emphasized his existence, his name and identity, and his work. And Dave made this statement, which, which I wrote down, I thought it was great. He says, this passage should blow our minds about Jesus. This passage should blow our minds about Jesus. Here we're in the Christmas season and we're thinking Adventish thoughts and we can't leave here without having our minds blown about Jesus. That's who we've been praising and worshiping through these great songs this morning. And why? Because as Dave led us through, because Jesus is the incarnate word of God who existed from eternity past and he's the creator. He's the one who made all things but he himself is not made. That is, Jesus Christ is God. And so the thought that all of that was put into flesh, a little baby, helpless, should blow our minds. It's astonishing, this idea of the incarnation. We all have uh, Christmas traditions and uh, if, if you're like me and my family, you have a Christmas tradition of going out to look at Christmas lights. Anybody do that or put up Christmas lights? Uh, we're kind of spotty with that, I have to confess. Um, and, uh, you know, we see lights all over the place and everything's very festive. And uh, came across a, a, a picture uh, this week, late this week, that just made me go, wow, that, that encapsulates a lot of, of the passage that we have to preach this morning, uh, which are verses four through nine. I'm gonna show it to you here. Maybe you've seen, some of you have seen this one. Do you, ever, do you ever feel this way when you go out driving around, you've got, you know, you've got those neighbors, right? You've got the Griswold family Christmas house. And uh, if you're like me, you can't even muster a ditto uh, next door. I thought about this, uh, th- this picture, and uh, it, it, it's, it's kind of an apt metaphor, I think, 
in, in a lot of ways. It's a multifaceted metaphor. Uh, John likes to use metaphor, and, and his metaphors are painfully simple, and yet they are more complicated uh, the more you look at them and think about them. I got pondering on this picture, and the first thing that jumps out at me is that your, your attention is, is drawn immediately to the light, right? None of you are staring at the dark patches in this picture, right? I hope not. Well, now you are, but, uh, but, but, but immediately uh, the attention is seized by light. Uh, something else you probably uh, thought to yourself was, wow, you know, that, uh, if, you, if you had to choose one of those two houses to visit, which one would you rather visit? Uh, or, or maybe, let me ask it a different way. Which house seems to have more life in it? Right? Which house seems to have maybe a little more liveliness, a little more Christmas spirit in it? Now, the, the house on the right might have more attitude, and, and maybe, maybe that's where you are this holiday season. I can often relate to that, but... Uh, so, so one of them, because of the light, seems to have more, would, would seem to have more life in it. But, but, but another uh, point to be raised is, uh, you know, these Christmas lights, I, I think about Christmas lights, most lights, often, we're completely unaware of them. You think about it. You just, you don't notice the lights until they go dark, okay, and you gotta change the light bulb. But a lot of lights, it, it's to shine on something else, right, to illuminate something else. And Christmas lights are something that we go to look at and gaze at for their own sake. Christmas lights are, in a way, an end in and of themselves. They're an end in and of themselves. We just like to sit in front of that house and go, wow, that's pretty. Another thought that occurred to me is that when you can't compete with the house on the left, sometimes the best thing you can do is just punt it over and say, look, look here, right? In case you missed this house, in case, in case you're, you're driving with tunnel vision here, look here. This is where it's at. And then finally, when Christmas has come and gone, New Year's gets here, as pretty as these lights are, as much as we like to look at them for their own sake, these lights are still finite. These lights some of them burn out before the, the, the holiday season is, is over. But, but even then, Christmas comes and goes. We take them down. We put them in the attic. We put them in the garage. We don't enjoy them all year. Why? Because these lights are derivative. These, these aren't really ultimate. Right? We've got other things to do with our time. There are other things that are more worthy of our attention. And so the passage we have before us, I think, uh, touches on a lot of these ideas. So let's read together verses four through nine and then see what the Lord might have for us. I'm gonna back up to verse one just because I can't help myself. 
get the whole context. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made than has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible, thank you for the Gospel of John, and thank you most of all for your incarnate word, your son, Jesus Christ, whose life we celebrate and we ask that you would illuminate your word, that you would illuminate our hearts, that you would shine your light on the darkness, and Lord, that you would continue to overcome the darkness in our own hearts, and in this world as we put our trust in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. This is a pretty straightforward passage. John's language is extremely simple, pretty easy to track with. Uh, And so what I would like to do this morning is simply walk us through the passage, making some observations, but then ask some of those big questions. All right, what, what does this have for us? What are our takeaways What questions does this leave us with this time of year? Um, Just by way of preview, uh, these first 18 verses that we're preaching through at Advent, uh, commentators have noted, uh, like D.A. Carson has pointed out, that this is, is a poetic prologue to the book. It's a poetic prologue. You have in the prologue, in miniature, Themes, ideas, images, motifs that appear throughout the rest of John's gospel. And so uh, some of you might be tempted, as I was, to, to continue reading further into John's gospel, and maybe that might be something to do if you have a gospel of John handy, is read the book as a whole. And, and have on your radar some of the images and symbols and ideas that John is giving us in this prologue because they become recurring themes. John loves to cycle through these things and keep looping back. And the great thing about it is this is John, the disciple of Jesus, perhaps the, one of the, if not the closest, one of the closest disciples to Jesus who studied his, under his rabbi and would have committed to memory the very words of his teacher. So these come also straight from the mouth of Jesus. And so here are some words, some terms you might keep on your radar. You could highlight them in your Bible or underline them or jot them down. The word, the father, light, Life, darkness, world, witness, testify, belief, the idea of being born, and children. Those are just a few. And last week we saw that uh, there's a comparison to be made between the opening verses and Genesis 1 where God created, right? Let there be light. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in John's gospel, John is not giving us uh, Jesus's earthly genealogy. He's giving us Jesus's eternal heavenly pedigree. He's taking us even further back. And so there are parallels. It harkens back to the creation, but it's also amplifying and pointing us forward, not, not just to the physical, but to salvation, to salvation itself. So let's, let's see all these things as best we can in the limited amount of time that we have as we walk through. Verse four, in him, that is the word, was life. And that life was the light of men. This is important to keep in mind because as the creator of the world, the word is not just an impersonal force. John is standing over and against those philosophies, those ideas, those religions where, where God and, or maybe the word of, is this impersonal kind of a, a thing that just has its uh, movements and, and, and does what it does. No, to create all things, including living things, we need a living God. And the word is living. He is alive. He lived and he continues to live. One commentator put it this way, the word, the son, shares in the self-existing life of God. The self-existing life of the word was so dispensed at creation that it became the light of the human race. In other words, God, the word, God himself is so full of life that it overspills into creation and all things that live can see this life. We are without excuse when we look at things that are made. When we look at ourselves, we see that image reflected. But this verse also points forward, doesn't it? In that life was the light of men. This points forward to the fact that Jesus didn't just come and live and then beam back up. He didn't live and then die and that was the end. We know in chapter 20 of John's gospel, He's gonna be crucified, but he's going to rise again. He is the living one. In John's last book, in Revelation, we have an image of the risen Christ. I am the living one. And I hold the keys of death. We have this light and this life motif throughout John's gospel. If you wanna just jot down a few verses um, and, and just be, have these on your radar for later, maybe in your own reading, your own uh, devotional study. I just want to jog through a, a, a few of them really quickly. Of course, a lot of us can quote John 3.16, which speaks of the everlasting life that Christ came. For God so loved the world okay, to bring us everlasting life. John 5.40 has Jesus chastising Uh, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, you refuse to come to me to have life. Are you refusing the Lord of life? Chapter six, verses 48 through 53, Jesus is talking about being the bread of life and he says, and he uh, extends this metaphor and he says, my flesh I give it for the life of the world. He gives himself for the life, for the nourishment of the world. 
chapter 10, verse 10. I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. 10.28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. That's how abundant this life is. It's a non-perishable life. 11.25, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. And 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we loop back to the Father. Jesus, co-eternal with God the Father in the beginning. John's gospel also goes into, uh, makes much of light and light imagery. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There he brings those two together again. John 12, 46, excuse me, John 12, 36, and then 46. Uh, 12, 36 says, put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. And 1246 says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Jesus is saying throughout his whole life, I'm it. Look no further. I am that light who exists for his own sake. I am the one light you can gaze at and never thirst again for light. And you would never be tempted to turn away if you let me satisfy you with my life. In the the picture I showed you, we we often do. We we think of lights and we look at them and and there's a derivative sense in which Christmas lights are, are beautiful for their own sake. We go to look at them for their own sake. But we can't do this in a spiritual sense, can we? We we can't look at Christmas lights and all those things as ends in and of themselves because they are finite. What is the point of all these lights at Christmas? If nothing else, every time this week that you look at a light of Christmas, I want you to think of the true light. I want you to think of Jesus. Why? Because the point of Christmas is, connect, is to connect us to a light that is also life. Where else in, under heaven or earth do we have such a thing? Where to be connected to light is also to be connected with life. Jesus came into the world so that he could overcome darkness and give life, eternal life, to all who would believe in him. So Christmas time is a time where we have these good feelings. We're often, we're often drawn to Christmas for a number of reasons, maybe because of emotion. We, we, we get those waves of nostalgia, right? Those, those, those good times with family and things like that. Or, or maybe we, we use it as a time to throw around moral platitudes, all right, well, you know, let's, let's be, you know, everybody, everybody's just in a more giving mood, right? Let's just, let's just be like that. Um, maybe an intellectual proposition we're, we're, we're drawn to or, or an idea as wonderful as goodwill towards men, peace on earth. And these things are important, but they are not ultimate. 
Because if we don't get past these things without being drawn to the person of Jesus, they're going to disappoint us with the passing of the season. Only in the light of Christ do any of these things make sense. The purpose of John's gospel is to draw us to the light so that we will be connected to Christ's life. And that's why we preached through Mark uh, over, over this last year, was we wanted to study the life of Jesus. We wanted to follow the life of Jesus, this astonishing man, God taking on flesh and doing what we could not do for ourselves. Doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it or overcome it. Now, some of you are maybe cocking your heads looking over at your neighbor. We've got a number of different translations for this word. Uh, Some of your versions might say the darkness has not understood it or uh, comprehended it or overcome it. Now, I'm neither a Greek scholar nor the son of a Greek scholar. I have Greek scholar friends and I can find Greek scholar commentator, commentators. Um, suffice it to say, <laughs> the Greek word here is tricky. Why? Because it can mean all of those things. And there are arguments, good arguments, on both sides. Um, it, does it, does uh, the darkness, does it make sense to say that the darkness has not understood it, comprehended? Well, that would make sense of the verses that follow, right? That's why you would have to have John the Baptist uh, testifying to the light. That's how dense people are, right? Who has to testify about light? Think about it. The only people you have to testify about light to are blind people, right? We are spiritually blind, and so that goes with, uh, with, with that part of the passage. By the same token, uh, there's the observation that uh, later on in John's Gospel in 1235, Jesus warns his disciples Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you or overcomes you. He uses the same root word. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. So which is it? Well, it's my humble opinion. I could be wrong, but I'm a literature guy. Okay, I teach literature and analysis and all of that. I think John's smart enough to use a word that can go both directions because he's doing both things at once. That's, that's just my, my own opinion. He's, he's, he's using one of those words. And comprehend is actually a good word because this idea of comprehending, it can mean something intellectually, but it can also mean this idea of throwing your arms around something, grabbing, grasping. The darkness has not comprehended the light and the darkness at the same time has not comprehended it. It has not taken it captive. And what's important here, let's, let's zoom out and get the big picture important idea. What John is saying is, look, darkness and light are not simply polar concepts that are mutually supportive of one another. I have, I've heard this unwitting heresy even within uh, Christian circles, um, and maybe I've even said it a uh, slip of the tongue that way, but, but we need to be on guard about this. I've heard people say, well, you know, uh, 
evil. Evil's necessary uh, so that uh, evil's necessary for good to exist, so that we know what good is. And I don't think that's biblical. Now it's true, God can redeem darkness, that is spiritual darkness, wickedness, evil sin. He, ha- he is redeeming it. He is bending it to his purposes given its existence. But let's be clear, darkness is unnecessary. Darkness is unnecessary. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God end of story, that's all you would ever need. Evil and sin came about later. And when you think about darkness, darkness is, is nothing. It's a void. Darkness is a parasite. It is uncreative. It is unoriginal. It only feeds off of that which already exists. And the good news of the Christian gospel, the good news that John is telling his audience that might have had this idea that, well, you know, good, evil, you know, it's like the force, it's like the Sith, the Jedi, right? There's always got to be this kind of balance and it's just, but what's the final hope? The final hope is that light will triumph over darkness. As John Piper put it, we will see one day the total victory of light. And how? How did Christ win us the victory over the darkness? Because he experienced the worst darkness that any man has ever experienced. That is separation from God the Father. He conquered the darkness by succumbing to it. But as he said, I lay my life down. No one has authority to, let, to take my life. I lay it down. I did this on purpose. Why? So that he would then take it back up again and rise and be alive so that you and I would not fear death. What's the worst thing that could ever happen to you? Ultimately, you could die. That's physical. What's the worst thing that could happen to you ultimately beyond that? You could die spiritually. You could be forever separated from God and Christ tasted that so that you wouldn't have to. That's the good news of Christmas. Verses six through seven. There came a man who was sent from God. Now this is an odd, this is kind of an awkward transition. Uh, now, John does have to get into the story here, and he, he's, he's just so excited. Uh, his name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. Here we're going, John is, is giving us these wonderful theological big picture ideas, but now he's bringing it down to something familiar, something that we can really know. There's a man. His name was John. But note he was sent from God. Why? As a witness to testify. This is how we know that Jesus is the true light. If you read through John's gospel, I want you to look for all the places he uses the word witness or testify. Witness or testify. Because there are those scholars, and they always come out around Christmas time, right? Popular news. They always, you know 
trumpet would they have to say around Christmas and Easter? And there are those scholars who say, well, you know, the, the, the early gospels like uh, Mark and the other synoptics, you know, they started with Jesus as kind of a, a man and then gradually uh, we, ha- we developed a Christology that was more theological and, and, and Jesus kind of gained stature uh, and, and they made him out to be God later. That wasn't there from the beginning. Well, I submit to you, look at how many times John speaks of eyewitnesses, people saying, and these are legal terms, witness, testimony. And look at all the groups of people he sprinkles throughout his gospel who all, from their various places and perspectives, testify as to who Jesus really was. First, we have John the Baptist, but we also have the Father and the Spirit testifying at the baptism. We have the disciples testifying and bearing witness. We have crowds witnessing the miracles, testifying about Jesus. We have the Samaritan woman going to give testimony about Jesus and his omniscience. And then we have the words and the works of Jesus himself. John's gospel is saturated with testimony, witness. If you're here visiting at Christmas time because you think it's, 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 it's a good thing to do, you know, have some, have some Christmas church, I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here and I hope that this will cause you to ask further questions, deeper questions if you don't believe that Jesus is who he said he was. If you find yourself not believing, if you find yourself scratching and going, well, I don't know. Honestly, that's, that's a hard one. This idea that there's a man who was actually sent from God and he's God in the flesh and he rose from the dead. If that's you, I want, I want you to feel welcome and I want you to feel welcome to ask those questions. I want you to ask me. I want you to, there are, there are plenty of people in this room. I'm just looking around saying, yeah, yeah, who, can, who would love to sit with you and talk with you about why do Christians believe this? There is evidence. There is testimony for this. Fast forward to the end of John's book in chapter 20, verse 31, and you have this statement. These things are written, why? So that you may believe. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote this to you. He wrote this to me so that we would believe. That is how we get hooked up to the life-giving light of Christ who shows us the Father, who reunites us with our Creator. Verses eight through nine. He himself, that is John, was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. As great as John the Baptist was, he was not an end in and of himself, and he knew that. I am unworthy to even untie Jesus' sandals he, he is greater than I, as it's gonna tell, tell you later, because he came before me. We see this theme later on in, in John's last book that he wrote in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, where John falls down in the face of this heavenly being, this angel, and the angel says, stop, get off your face, worship God. Why? For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about Jesus. 
And so we don't want to confuse the light bearers with the light itself. We don't want to confuse the light bearers with the light itself. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself as both a light source, but on the cross. The cross draws all men to him. So, this true light, the authentic, genuine, real, and ultimate light, that's what that word true means. How do we get connected with it? What's the point of this passage? Light, it illuminates our real problem. It illuminates our real problem, which is darkness, sin, death, wickedness, evil, in the world around us and in our own hearts. But it also points us to the solution, and the solution is the life of the Son of God, his life traded for yours. And as the end of our passage suggests, that through him all men might believe we trust what he came to do for us. That's the gospel. That's the Christmas message. And it's true not just at Christmas, it's true the whole year. The Christmas lights can come up and down, but Jesus is finished. He has done everything for us, for our salvation. I want to leave us with some questions for meditation, perhaps this week as we go. Um, whoops. I'm sorry. I, I did too much. I'll just continue. Yeah, thank you. Nope, I, I did it again. I'm just going to stop pushing buttons. How about that? Thank you, technology guys. Thank you. <laughs> so grateful for you. These are questions that struck me as I was meditating through this passage and praying about it, and I hope that they will maybe challenge you and wherever you are. Am I finding my life in Christ? Have I accepted his life in exchange for mine? Talked about the gospel. Is, is, is this where I find my true sense of identity, belonging, that, that's it. That's the all-encompassing question. That's the overarching question. Am I, on a daily basis, going to Christ for my life as my sustainer, as my redeemer, as my friend? Maybe, maybe if you're like me, you have to be honest and say, I'm not. Or at least I'm not as consistently as I know I ought to be. What, what darkness feels like it's encroaching? What darkness are you in right now? What darkness do you see around you? And how can you see? What do you need to do to see that Christ has actually already defeated it and is defeating it? Maybe not on the timeline that we want, but he has defeated death at the cross. Christmas is a joyful time for many, but Christmas can also bring acutely to our minds loss. We think of people that we wish were still with us. We think of fractured, broken relationships. Perhaps uh, we're dealing with unemployment 
financial struggles. We might even just be wrestling with a hopeless feeling that our life is not what we had hoped it would be and that we are powerless to do anything about it. Do you see why God himself in the flesh must be our final solution? Nothing else will do. Nothing else. What distracts us from this true light? What are those little lights that aren't the true light? Or worse, those false lights that vie for our attention, that sparkle like bug zappers in the night. It's so beautiful. Boom, you're dead. (laughs) Or uh, better, an ignis fatuous uh, in bogs, uh, low-lying lands where, where there's peat and, and, and decomposing in the winter, decomposing uh, um, uh, crops and things. Uh, the methane uh, builds up and something scientific, science, science, science. Um, and and uh, I, I just footnote to all my science friends. Um, and, and it actually ignites. And you, where we go, where my wife is from, you, you have these, and you'll see fires in the middles of these bogs, right? And if you were to be drawn to that light, you would sink into the smelly, stinky muck and be stranded. What are these things? What are these false lights? Well, you could go on and on, but here's just a few that came to my mind. How about just money, wealth, comfort, ease, toys, just the crass materialism that we are all easily succumb to. Just the desire for more. How many people were injured during Black Friday? Uh, you know, barely having finished giving thanks, right? I confess, we bought a dishwasher. It was a deal, okay. <laughs> but we didn't bludgeon anyone for it. I know, my you know, filthy rags. It's, it's, yeah. Nothing to boast in. <laughs> what about science, technology, progress? We have all these great gizmos, and they all come out at Christmas, and they make our lives so easy, right? And tools do that, right? And there's nothing wrong with tools. There's nothing inherently wrong with a hammer or an iPhone, but it's what you do with it. And will this tool become an ultimate thing? There comes a point where we start to serve the tool rather than the tool is serving us. And, and what are those things in your life that you, are, that you are kind of seeing as ends in and of themselves? What about political causes? It's that time of season. or on that election cycle. Fill in the blanks. If only X would be elected. If only we could change the laws to say, blah, 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 what is it? What are you putting your hope in on earth? What are, what are we devoting our time, our energy, our blogging, our tweeting to that is disproportionate to the degree to, the, to which they can save us? 
We live in a dark world. And this week's been hard if you've been paying attention to the news as I have. I've just, I, I've, I've had to fight just the feelings of cynicism and just oh, lash out. What, you know, we've got, we had Paris. Before that, we had Kenya, San Bernardino, our own backyard, Chad, the London subway. When is it going to end? Well, the good news is, it is going to end. Jesus is going to end it. And he will be victorious. And we've been promised this. And this is good news. Maybe we trust in education. As an educator, public school teacher, and we have four children, we believe in education. My wife's a teacher. We believe in education. It's important. But how often can we make that thing ultimate? And do I want the light of Christ and the life of Christ in my children as much as I want the names and capitals of all 30 states in their minds and hearts. And yes, I know I said 30. Anybody mad? Just seeing if we're awake. Priorities, right? Maybe it's getting that degree that you think will define you, who will give your life meaning and purpose. Maybe it's image. We want to control and craft our image. I know I do, right? That online presence. Cult of personality. We can even do this in the church, can't we? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3. There are those who are, you know, they're squabbling over who's of Paul and who's of Apollos. Apollos, interesting, named after the god of the sun, that whole leitmotif thing. Who's, who are you drawn to more? We can't follow the cult of personality. We have to resist it. Even Christianity itself can become a substitute for Christ. Christianity as a system of theology or as an apologetic or as a, a system of philosophy. I'm a philosophy guy. I have sympathy. I think it's important. We gotta do it. But we can so easily trade that for Christ and who he is. Patrick Swayze, theologian, says this. I have a great deal of faith in faith. If you believe something strongly enough, it becomes true for you. This is an ignis fatuous, a foolish light. That's a bog. And finally, am I promoting the true light or do I promote myself? I have to wrestle with this question or I ought to wrestle with this question every day as a public school teacher who's constantly vying for the attention and approval of my students so I can teach them. It's easy to let that become my main focus. And we can do it in so many ways. Promote our own agenda. But we need to promote the light at Christmas time and the whole rest of the year. And let, let me be clear. These parting thoughts are not so, to, to, to end on a try harder. This is not a try harder sermon. The point is not to try harder but to surrender. To look to look to the light, to believe, to trust, and that is how the life gets in you. To say, I can't do life without Jesus. Everything else I can do without, 
but this life I cannot do without Jesus. Won't you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for Jesus, for the light that he gives us, that he brings, points to you so that we can be reconciled, so that we can have abundant life and eternal life and not fear death no matter where we are. Father, I pray that you would be working on hearts this morning. And Lord, if anyone here does not know this light and life in Christ, I pray that you would lead them into your gospel and that they would discover and that they would see the light for themselves through your word, Lord, and that they would talk to someone about this, Lord. We so want them to become part of this glorious, glorious life. In Christ's name we pray these things, amen.